The following is a recording from LTCCC's 30th anniversary program, Where Do We Go From Here in Long-Term Care? You can watch the video of the program on our website, nursinghome411.org. Again, that's nursinghome411.org. Enjoy. We're so glad that you can join us for this evening of that celebration and thought-provoking discussion regarding where do we go from here in long-term care. Before we move forward with the program, I'm gonna take a moment to recognize our sponsors. Our grand hosts, Sherburn Electronics, AARP New York, the Rizzuto Law Firm, Ann Dillon Stanton, Blondie's Treehouse, Attorney Thomas L. Gallivan, Daly and Marino LLP, also our individual sponsors. Valerie Bogart, the Evelyn Frank Legal Resources Program, Jeanette Sandor, Martin and Marsha Petroff, Senior Justice Law Firm, Fratello Law PC, and Ambroso and Bellotti CPAs PC. Thank you to each and every one of our sponsors. This year, more than any year in the past, our sponsor support and your support is most critical. In my 30 years of practicing, nursing home residents have never been faced with such life-threatening and life-changing events and circumstances. I also want to acknowledge Sarah Rosenberg, our executive assistant and office manager of LTCC, and Eric Goldwine, LTCC's director of policy and communications, for their tremendous efforts in preparing for this evening's event. I now have the honor of introducing LTCC's Executive Director, Richard Malat. Richard's knowledge base, passion, and tireless efforts to improve, to improve care, quality of life, and dignity for the elderly and disabled are second to none. This year especially, Richard has been and continues to be one of the most powerful voices with regard to the current state of long-term care, as well as the standards and regulations all facilities should be adhering to. Richard, I turn the program over to you. Yeah, thanks very much. Um, that, was, that was very generous of you. Um, and thank you everyone for joining us today uh, for the program. Thank you, of course, to our sponsors for supporting this program. I should say that Deb is also a sponsor, although I don't think she mentioned herself and I want to thank Deb for her leadership of our board of directors and for her many contributions throughout the year to make a positive difference, both in our lives and in the lives of residents um, in New York and across the country. So thank you for that. As you all know, um, moving on to the panel, over the last eight months, um, they've been particularly hard for residents and heartbreaking for many families. Uh, far too many residents have suffered unnecessarily and far too many of them have died unnecessarily. This is due to longstanding problems, including inadequate staffing and poor infection control, which have been exacerbated as a result of the pandemic. There's no doubt that we need to protect residents now and hold providers accountable for meeting essential safety standards. Far too many nursing homes are run by millionaires and even billionaires who are taking a big cut of the payments they receive to provide care and then turning around and saying they don't have enough money to hire more staff or to pay a living wage. While this accountability is critical, 
it is also important that we look forward and begin the steps necessary to both better ensure safety and dignity and to re-envision what nursing homes care, excuse me, can and should be. To discuss this further, we have assembled a wonderful and diverse panel. Each will be providing us with some of their thoughts on long-term care and where we go from here to make nursing homes a better place to both live and work. Following the panel, we're going to leave time for Q&A. Please put any questions that you have in the Q&A box at the bottom of the screen. You are welcome to use the chat for comments or discussion, but if you have a question for the panelists, please put it in the Q&A. We're gonna start the presentation of the program, excuse me, with Assemblymember Richard Gottfried. Assemblymember Gottfried chairs the Health Committee of the New York State Assembly and has been a leader both in New York and nationally on healthcare rights issues and other civil rights issues, including civil liberties, reproductive freedom, and gay rights. Personally, I have never worked with any leader on either the state or the national level who possesses his level of knowledge or demonstrates dedication to both protecting and empowering people to get the care that we all deserve. Without further ado, I'm gonna hand it over to Samir Gottfried. Well, thank you, Richard. And uh, to, to follow your, your statement earlier in the evening, you know, I, I, don't, I don't think I've ever heard anyone say with further ado, but <laughs> with further ado, uh, I just want to say anything that I and my staff have been able to do on long-term care issues is just about entirely uh, to be attributed uh, to the Long-Term Care Community Coalition. Um, it's, I don't know what we would do uh, without you, Richard, and uh, uh, and the coalition and uh, and and your members. Um, so um, I have said many many times uh, in 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 the last several months that almost every problem we see in long term care uh, with COVID uh, started pre exists started long before COVID even evolved, decades before. Uh, short staffing, uh, short staffing of health department personnel uh, to inspect nursing homes, lax attitudes on enforcement uh, from the health department, uh, inadequate funding uh, under the Medicaid program. Uh, all of these problems uh, go back decades. Um, COVID has obviously increased all of those problems uh, uh, by greatly increasing uh, patients' need for care and attention and adding stress to the, uh, and, and additional tasks uh, to the work of, uh, uh, of nursing home staff, adding costs to the operations. I, we could all go on and on. Um, there's been, a, you know, there's been a lot of talk about the March 25th order uh, by the state uh, that uh, COVID patients upon leaving a hospital, if they came from a nursing home, must be accepted back in the nursing home they came from. Um, I think a lot of, to a large extent, that order made a lot of sense. Uh, you know, a hospital bed is, is scarce and expensive and you don't want to stay in a hospital any longer than you have to, even or just because you're surrounded by sick people. Um, 
you want to go home if at all possible. And for nursing home residents, their home is a nursing home. Uh, and they should not be discriminated against. Um, on the other hand, the health department should have done, I think, a much better job of making sure that nursing homes uh, provided the appropriate uh, care and services. And if people needed to be uh, isolated, the nursing homes uh, should have been required to make sure that that took place. Um, we had uh, with the Senate Health Committee and, and, and our aging committees, we had hearings back in August on the situation and found you know, serious shortages uh, of PPE uh, and major problems uh, with, uh, with visiting uh, regulations. Uh, you know, nursing home visitors to residents of nursing homes provide care, provide service, provide emotional and mental support for people's well-being. Uh, and it's also long been well-documented that patients who don't have visitors uh, in nursing homes are treated much more poorly by the staff than residents who do uh, have visitors. Uh, so breaking through uh, that barrier has been a, uh, a, a serious and continuing uh, battle. Um, you know, the one thing uh, interesting that we heard in those hearings was the trade associations that represent the owners of nursing homes, whether for-profit or non-profit, went on at some length praising the health department for consulting them constantly and working closely with them. Interestingly, the unions representing the workers the families of residents, the, the few residents that actually testified uh, that were able to, none of them thanked the health department for constantly communicating with them and consulting them and, uh, and cooperating with them. Uh, and I think that speaks uh, really volumes. Um, for the future, uh, we're looking at several pieces of legislation. Uh, some of which we've drafted, some of which we're in the process of looking at, uh, coming out of, largely coming out of those hearings. Uh, one is to uh, develop a concept of a direct care ratio. You know, in the insurance, in the health insurance world, uh, the law requires that uh, every health insurance company spend uh, 80 to 85 percent of its uh, premium revenue. On, on actual benefits for the enrollees. Uh, interestingly, they call that spending their medical loss ratio. Uh, some of us think health insurance companies are supposed to spend money on your care. They call it a loss. Um, so on that model, we are developing the concept of a direct care ratio to require every nursing home to spend at least a certain percentage of its income on direct care, because uh, an enormous amount of nursing home revenue gets siphoned off through uh, multiple corporate ownerships and real estate deals and the like uh, that ultimately ends up in the pockets of the owners of the nursing home, uh, but never gets anywhere near uh, the question of providing uh, care and upkeep. So we want to make, we're developing a proposal to make sure that uh, uh, a set percentage of the revenue uh, 
stays in the nursing home and is spent on, on, on care and services. Uh, I think we need to seriously look at the question of private ownership of nursing homes. It, you know, it used to be, I think like about a third of most nursing homes in New York were privately owned. I think it's now at about two thirds. Um, and it's pretty well documented that for-profit nursing homes uh, provide much worse care uh, than not-for-profit nursing homes. The not-for-profit nursing homes are not all you know, to write home about, uh, but the for-profit uh, privately owned ones uh, are a serious problem. Uh, I think we should look very seriously uh, at at least a moratorium on having more nursing homes and more beds uh, in for-profit ownership uh, and maybe going further than that. Uh, certainly the safe staffing bill, uh, which I've been supporting since we helped put it together uh, in the late 90s, uh, is more critically needed than ever. Uh, to require a certain number of nurses and nurse aides uh, per patient. Uh, this year in the state budget that we enacted back uh, at the beginning of April, uh, we did several really bad things uh, in the area of long-term care uh, relating to Medicaid, which of course pays for the vast bulk of, of long-term care, uh, particularly for home care uh, we added uh, uh, requirements of uh, uh, needing assistance on ac activities of daily living uh, that are going to make it uh, very difficult uh, for a lot of people to qualify uh, for home care. And that's going to put a lot of people either into nursing homes when they don't need to, or it will require more and more members of their families uh, to give up their lives and careers uh, to stay home and take care of a uh, uh, of a loved one. Um, the Medicaid program now is set to start uh, imposing a look back period on uh, transfer of assets uh, to be financially eligible for Medicaid. Uh, another serious harm to people who really are poor uh, and need Medicaid to pay for home care. Uh, and, and finally, we put the past legislation that basically puts the the Maximus Company, for those of you who know it, it's a, it's a huge uh, multi-state uh, giant to put them in charge of deciding whether uh, a given applicant for, uh, for long-term care uh, physically uh, qualifies uh, for that care. Um, and I think the bulk of that legislation needs to go. So we've got a lot of what we did in the Medicaid budget this year uh, that we are going to try to uh, to get rid of. Uh, back in 2011, Governor Cuomo uh, pressured the legislature, and we caved in would be the word for it, uh, to imposing a a cap on the growth of Medicaid spending every year, not based on on actual costs that year or actual enrollment or the severity of conditions of people. Uh, in the Medicaid population, uh, but based on a 10-year rolling average uh, of costs. And as a result, that Medicaid cap is making it more and more impossible every year uh, to adequately provide funding uh, for care for people uh, on Medicaid. I think the Medicaid cap should be repealed, and I'm 
putting in a bill to do that. Last item <clears throat> I want to mention, uh, the Ombudsman Program uh, has always been in New York seriously underfunded. It gets more seriously underfunded every year. Uh, I believe we really need to put on a major effort this year uh, to bump up its funding. Uh, so those are some of the things I wanted to talk about. Uh, I'm looking forward to the rest of the evening. Assemblymember Goffrey, thank you so much. Appreciate that. Very, very interesting and as always thoughtful. Our next presenter is Marcella Goheen. Uh, she is a writer in a theater project management, um, in theater project management, excuse me, and a caregiver advocate, founder of www.essentialcarevisitor.com for her husband, who is a COVID-19 survivor in a New York City nursing home. I'm going to, a uh, long-term care facility, excuse me, in New York City. I think it's a nursing home. I'm going to hand it over to you, Marcella. Thank you so much, Richard. It's such an honor to be here. Congratulations on your 30 years of service to long-term care. That's fantastic. I got tears during the video and um, it's an honor to be here uh, with you and Deborah and Assemblyman Godfrey for all your work and Kathy and the other panelists. So thank you so much. Um, I've prepared something tonight that um, I'd like to actually read. Um, uh, based on the past eight months of my journey uh, with, with COVID and my husband living in the uh, facility. Um, so if you just give me, it was just a welcome to my life. Here we go. And so um, I do come here tonight too with my husband, Bobby, who is living currently in a long-term care facility in Washington Heights. He lives in Isabella Geriatric Center, the worst hit COVID um, nursing home, probably globally, maybe. Um, and this is what I've written um, to your question, Richard, of where do we go from here? Uh, the past five years, I have journeyed with my husband as a caregiver in an extraordinary medical journey. A rare neuromotor condition has left him unable to walk, talk, and initiative uh, initiate his gross and fine motor movement. But he understands everything. His name is Bobby. When his condition first started, he let me know I could leave him if I wanted, that he didn't want to be a burden. I promised him that he would be my joy. There are no words for the privilege I feel in caring for my husband. Pre-COVID-19, I daily tended to Bobby at Isabella Geriatric Center in Upper Manhattan, five to seven hours a day for the past three and a half years, either taking a morning shift or an evening shift, supplementing his care so that in partnership with the staff, my husband, could receive pure care endorsement for his high, highest level of functioning, which is his resident disability, human and civil right. My care supplemented and often solved the staffing issues that permeated not just on our floor, but many facilities nationwide that experienced staffing issues. As a family member, I went through many phases of education with CNAs and nurses of his rare neuromotor condition that has no name sorry for the siren, in this new home, sorry, a long-term care facility. I taught staff how Bobby moves, his motor compromises, his verbal cueing, how Bobby responds to sound words, food, music, laughter. I would work hard every day with his care team to preserve his life amidst his inevitable tragic degeneration of a brain disease that has no name. The staff and I would create lemonade stand days, music days, activity days to preserve Bobby's quality of life in an institution, building a life around his legacy. His room is decorated with all of his favorite things, the Beatles, photos of him, spiritual sayings of hope, and what Bobby would want the staff to know if he could talk, affirmations for the staff during their day in the work on his wall. Complete gratitude. Bobby worked with severely challenged teenagers for over 20 years at the Board of Ed. 
he has a gift with the kids, Mr. Bob, they called him. Now in his community, they call him Papa Chuli. My goal with this essential care partnership was that Bobby would hopefully feel he was at home, not just someone living in an institution, that he wasn't abandoned, forgotten about, or being hidden, that his life mattered, and that the care staff that I needed as his wife without children, that I needed them and they were a new family. I thought if this is his new home, going to be the best home he ever had and I'm going to be a part of it, an essential part of the care team, an essential care visitor. We all learn together as a team, as care partners. The care partnership that I initiated was often fraught with misunderstandings, fear, liability discourse versus accountability discourse, what's best for the patient, what's best for the safety of the staff, communication problems, misunderstandings, all rooted in liability care. While each party was trying to keep the residents' rights first, what became clear in my journey pre-COVID in this institutional setting was that our liability practice of a tug of war actually left residents like my husband subject to a care dynamic with a person-centered care intention was lost in the shuffle of personalities, misunderstandings of rights, compassion fatigue from humans trying to help humans and fear of lawsuits and grievances. Imagine. The only party that suffers in this mis miscommunication is Bobby, the resident. Many times <clears throat> I would want to write keywords, a new language for the staff that would reflect what I meant when I advocated. Asking for hydration mean, does not mean a grievance or a lawsuit. It means, can we please just make sure he gets his eight glasses of thickets a day? How are we hearing each other? How are we speaking to each other? A traumatized family member grieving and a staff member who's exhausted. I say, please change my husband. The staff hears I might be fired. I am here for my husband, Bobby, who cannot speak for himself. I would remind the staff 24 seven. I often thought, what is this resistance? What is this fear? Whether you are an aid administrator, social worker, advocate, consumer, this fear care dynamic, it's HD colored even more in a pandemic. There is a gross disconnect with the family essential care intention. Then COVID happens. Starting March 13th, I had no way to visit, contact, or speak to Bobby in the heat of a pandemic. Like many other family members, I was subject to a phone ringing in the facility and a visitation directed that stated I could not go in. I was frozen in time. I surrendered to the idea that Bobby might die, but if he did die, he was gonna be surrounded by his care team that knew him, not strangers at a hospital. We had lived that turnstile hospital dynamic where nursing homes send patients to the hospital and hospitals discharge patients back to the home. Prior to Isabella, Bobby had been transferred six different times within a six month period, unconscionable. Bobby contracted the COVID-19, he survived the COVID-19, lost weight during COVID, and the entire time I was challenged to trust a care system that was not trustworthy pre-pandemic without my participation. It's been horrifying to live. I kept praying that all of the care things I had taught the aides they would do in my place, that they would own the bridge care I provided in a normal setting. This expectation during a pandemic I knew was a delusion. I had to surrender my husband, I had to trust. The good news for me is that Bobby lived, his COVID resolved and I'm so deeply grateful for God's plan and the aides who were the angels to my husband. But it's hard for me to write about where do we go from here without what is addressing what's happening now still. And without, of course, thinking about the residence my husband lost on his floor. But I will try for Richard and Deborah and for all your work. Where do we go from here? We need new care language reform to transform liability care to accountability care. 
through understanding a common core language whereby both parties are clear on what the best treatment and outcomes are for the resident based on their life pre-institution. We need family advocacy as partnership, not a threat. Language as a family advocacy tool would be established between the facility's care team and family, create it and learn it together, not just through family councils. This language tool will bring all parties to the same page for effective advocacy that serves the resident and his or her person-centered needs. Many families in the heat of the pandemic didn't know what their rights were, their loved ones' rights were, and in that lack of knowledge and language, were stripped of any chance to save and talk for their loved ones. The worst outcome happened. Death, loss, will be evaluating this for decades. I know this, I'm currently living it now. We need trauma-informed care and education on trauma response and healing for everyone. We are all traumatized from the loss, from the horror, families, survivors, facilities, agencies, heads of agencies, and my dear beloved Bob. If there was trauma to living caregiver stress pre-pandemic, the adjustment to telecaregiving and separation as a caregiver has been extraordinarily painful. At my outdoor visit last week, where I was still almost after eight months of separation, not able to touch Bobby because of a confusion of language, I nearly fainted. Some families go for the touch anyway, and they get banned till the end of the pandemic. I haven't done that. I saw my husband, Bobby's eyes were wide-eyed last week, and he looked scared. It was his first brush with the air in almost eight months. Can you imagine? The staff was hovering over him, protective. He survived. I could see everyone was traumatized. One staff member said, we fought too hard, Bobby, so I'm going to stand right next to you. The staff member can touch him, but if I touched him, language says I might be banned for visits. I repeated to my husband, you did nothing wrong. I did nothing wrong. My husband can't process the abandonment. He feels responsible. That's a clinically evidence-based trauma response. Kerrigan is being lost on liability discourse. My husband, I know, misses his Mr. Birchie, Miss Blockett, Miss Ikarachi, Miss Elba. They all succumb to COVID, and I just wished I could give him a hug to acknowledge this loss. We must acknowledge and create a multidisciplinary care trauma model that addresses what is happening now through eight months of isolation. This informed denial by our community at this time is not acceptable. Families and residents, not just in New York State, but nationwide, are suffering. Um, we need state-mandated compassion training for all caregivers. Ironically, there is a compassionate care definition that is in the visitation mandates currently, yet the irony is currently New York State families have to fight tooth and nail to prove that their loved one is qualified for compassionate care visits. At this point, as far as family essential caregivers are concerned, every resident is qualified for a compassionate care visit. Our loved ones have been isolated for eight months. Again, language. We are losing our loved ones as they are being grouped into a medically unreasonable protective that isn't accurate, isn't addressing what is happening in real time. Science-driven data is showing us that loved ones are dying of failure to thrive, malnutrition, unexplained weight loss versus COVID in nursing homes right now. Yet there is a liability dance going on. That is missing the point in New York State. It's not okay. Collaboration. All parties must work together. Facility trade organizations, lobbyists, we are all here for the same reason, the resident. The trade organizations advocate for the bottom line and the advocates speak for those who cannot speak for themselves. We need to forgive these constructs, constructs that are right for reform and work together for the sake of our COVID survivors and out of respect for the ones we lost. Finally, as the child of a mother who ran nursing homes in the Midwest from the 70s to the early 2000s, we are in full circle. My mom was part of the reform in 1987, and she says at 91, she isn't too sure how she'd handle this one if she was still practicing. But one fact remains, she states, you are there for Bob, serve the resident. And that 
trumps all theory, all disagreement, all opinions. This is why we're all here. Finally, our societal view on the disenfranchised populations must change. It is deeper, oddly, than a plan, a curriculum, a training, and restructuring money sources. My husband is 66. This was not on his bucket list to live in an institution. Our retirement plan looked very different five years ago than this reality we're living. And as we serve our community through our journey and advocacy, the biggest betrayal is that perhaps my husband, because he cannot walk or talk, maybe does not matter. Or maybe, as someone asked me the other day, does he even know who you are? The idea that he is a burden on the system that is a number and is a cost is unconscionable. And so we can shift our society consciousness to deeply understanding that the infirm and disabled have equal rights to thrive no matter their disability. And I mean everyone, that the elderly, disabled, chronically ill, all vulnerable people we are not dismissible, that we understand this from our core. We'll be in a care predicament of sorts repeatedly over time in history. As long as we prioritize liability care over accountability care, accountability to all the bobs of the world, we will keep repeating this, we will fail. For all the family members, I will tell you it's not your fault. And in my own grief of not being able to touch my husband right now because of language and semantics and liability, I have to remind myself daily that I have not failed my husband. My husband is stuck in between language and a system of liability care over compassion care. The state legislator I advocate must reconvene as soon as possible after the election and before January to address the essential care visitor bills on the floor. The facilities must unfreeze in their trauma and continue to serve the residents with their family partnerships that provided the bridge care pre-pandemic. And we must all work collaboratively to address care language that has created barriers for care versus liability. We must start defining the implications of the essential care that families provided in this broken system now. The October 23rd Department of Health visitation mandate finally added the word essential. That's hopeful. And um, the last thing I'll just say is we have a lot of work to do. And to recap, I just wanted to add that um, we need to add, I believe we need to add to the residents' rights laws for families to receive their loved ones and loved ones to receive their families so this never happens again. Pass the many essential caregiver bills on the floor. I, I believe there's a couple of them or maybe four of them floating around. Create a family bill of rights if there isn't already. And forgive me, National Consumer Voice, if I got that wrong. And then build care language addressing care advocacy and trauma. We have a lot of work to do. And Bobby and I, um, my husband, who I haven't touched in eight months, um, I'm so happy and honored to be here to serve and do work as hard as I can for the reform on behalf of all families and all the Bobbies of the world. So thank you so much for asking me to speak, Richard, uh, on your 30th anniversary. Hope that was helpful. Oh, Marcella, thank you so much. And thank you so much for sharing such a, a, a personal um, and I know a really hard story. It's um, it's so meaningful. And, and again, you know, we talked a little bit at the beginning, both Deb and myself, but this is this is why we're here is to, um, you know, and this is why we, we've all gathered here today, but this is why the organization exists and why we brought you together. So um, um, thank you, thank you very much. Uh, next, we have Judy Johnson. Uh, Judy is a registered nurse at the Kingsbrook Jewish Medical Center Rutland Nursing Home. Uh, she currently works as the patient family liaison and is a delegate and executive member of the New York State Nurses Association at her facility. And Judy, I think there you go. Hi, Judy. Hey. Good evening. The opportunity to care for those who are not able to care for themselves is indeed one that I do not take for granted. 
I feel privileged to be a part of this awesome platform. And I just want to say thank you to Eric for giving me this opportunity to speak on behalf of this important aspect of healthcare. Good evening to the Honorable Richard Godfrey, Chair of the New York State Assembly Health, um, distinguished committee members and invited guests. As mentioned earlier, my name is Judy Johnson and I am a registered nurse at Kingsbrook Medical Center, Rutland Nursing Home. I am also an executive member and delegate of New York State Nurses Association, Neisner, at my facility. Um, in order to begin answering this question, where do we go from here in long-term care? It is imperative that we examine where we are currently in long-term care. Long-term care is usually associated with our frail, helpless elderly population and nursing homes. However, it should be noted that long-term care is provided for several other clusters of our population in settings, including home care, home health care, assisted living facilities, subacute rehab, and adult daycare centers. This evening, I will be focusing on nursing homes because firstly, I work in this type of facility. And secondly, it is public knowledge that nursing homes were disproportionately affected during the COVID-19 outbreak. With the introduction of managed care and reduction in several types of payments from Centers for Medicare and Medicaid Services, which is um, where the payments for most of these residents um, is generated, nursing homes are working with much less but required to do so much more for our most vulnerable in our population. Many nursing homes should be acu accurately labeled acute long-term facilities due to the severity of the illnesses we treat. These facilities require qualified, skilled personnel to safely care for our patients. Safe staffing, which NISNA continues to fight for. So yes, Continue. as I was saying, so many nursing homes should be accurately labeled acute long-term facilities due to the severity of illnesses um, we treat, right? Safe staffing, which NISNA continues to fight for, is usually substituted with adequate staffing or on several occasions, understaffing. This practice is dangerous and puts our patients at risk of falls pressure injuries, and other adverse events. The problem of understaffing reared its ugly head during the pandemic's outbreak. As several staff members fell ill, facilities were running on skeleton staff for too long before help arrived. Too many of our long-term patients died, and this took a tremendous toll on the emotional well-being of staff. The staff who stayed well and were able to report for work did so diligently. And we express gratitude to all our essential workers for this. The notion that staff who reported for work were not given the protective personal equipment, PPE, needed to safely perform their jobs remains an atrocity. This type of utter disregard for safety should never happen again here in our country, the USA, one of the richest countries in the world. 
this pandemic highlighted the weakness of our government to protect healthcare workers and patients. Leaving, leaving um, healthcare workers without PPE, which was needed to stay safe and protect our precious patients and residents. The analogy that healthcare workers were indeed fighting a war is quite true. The sad fact is we were fighting a war without our ammunition, our PPE, and many of our coworkers paid the ultimate sacrifice. Our American soldiers, when sent to war, are provided the necessary equipment as well as ammunition to fight to maintain the freedoms and privileges we enjoy as a nation. The question begs, why were essential workers' lives put at risk? Why did so many nursing home patients have to die? The, questions to these, the answers to these questions may never be clearly known. However, the responsibility rests upon the powers that be to ensure this does not happen again. As we witness how ill-prepared our beloved country's response to this pandemic was, it shined the spotlight on the weakness of our long-term care as a system. Nursing homes must be adequately funded to ensure that safe staffing ratios are adhered to for patients to be safely taken care of. Nursing homes must commit to higher standards of quality care for its patients, many of whom have contributed to society in, in, in valuable ways. It is imperative that employers put resources in place to address staff's mental um, well-being during this pandemic and going forward into the future. A key component to long-term care frequently overlooked is preventative care. New initiatives need to be enacted in underserved communities to invest in access to healthy food choices, safe spaces for exercise and available screening centers to diagnose diseases in early stages. Affordable healthcare as well as access to quality care should be guaranteed to each and every citizen, regardless of their ability or inability to pay. We need to remain vigilant and ensure the focus is not taken off long-term care facilities as we push towards securing these needed investments to safely care for our patients. Again, thank you so much for the opportunity to present to this panel and this um, um, in this forum, and I look forward to the future discussion. Thank you again. Judy, thank you so much, and, and thank you for your leadership at NISNA. Um, the organization does such, such important work, and, and of course, you know, nurses are the absolute backbone to uh, to caring for residents and caring for, for people in, in other settings as well, as you noted. So Thank you so much for that. Um, so, and I'm glad we were able to catch, to, to get you back in, but now I'm going to reintroduce um, Kathy Uncino. She is a uh, licensed clinical social worker and a psychotherapist and a longtime nursing home reform advocate. Uh, as I was saying before, she's also one of the most powerful and thoughtful advocates for nursing home residents that I know. And I really uh, appreciate the opportunities that I've had 
to work with her, especially over the past several months. And I'm so glad to welcome her to the panel today. Kathy. Thank you very much, uh, Richard, and uh, happy anniversary to the coalition. Our previous uh, panelists spoke so eloquently about what happened uh, within nursing homes during the pandemic and still is occurring during the pandemic that I can't do justice to the issues uh, any, any more than they have. And uh, I thank you for those uh, moving and very informative presentations. Uh, where, we are, where do we go from here? I'd like to begin with where we are right now to today. We're in the middle of an important uh, national election in which our nation is engaged uh, in an epic struggle to determine what kind of people we wanna be. And nursing homes are an intrinsic part of that struggle. Nursing homes are in fact, a microcosm of the great national debate containing so many of the central issues. Our nursing homes hold up a giant mirror to society's strengths and weaknesses and ask, do we want to continue to empower the already powerful at the expense of everyone else? How do we want precious Medicaid dollars to be applied? And above all, what kind of people do we want to be? During the pandemic, we heard already how heroic nursing home residents, staff and families have been and continue to be. And some administrators work tirelessly to keep all who live and work there safe. But that was despite flagrant federal and state failures to help and in some instances, both national and top state officials even took steps that made residents and staff unsafe. But in our brief time together, I want us to look at how nursing homes longstanding institutional culture has unintentionally not only underserved residents, but has caused unnecessary suffering, pre-pandemic even, and has not only limited and often demoralized staff, but has reduced, often reduced staff's effectiveness, a wonderful staff's effectiveness, and stifled their professional performance. Why is it that the hardest working people in the United States, the most conscientious, those under the most stress are often blocked from fully achieving the most humane, warm and nurturing environments where older people who need help can live more fully in their last years. Looking at the institutional culture, we find it prescriptive, controlling, a top-down management approach. What it's designed to do understandably, as all heads of organizations do, is to protect and strengthen the institution itself to make sure that the nursing home is viable. That's not an easy task, especially when government threatens to lower the Medicaid rate, as I believe our governor has. In fact, keeping the nursing home viable is a worthy goal. But when how this is done restrains and limits its clients in their final years, it's time to ask, is this the very best that we can do? Isn't there a way to keep nursing homes viable while also providing human environments that promote nursing home residents agency, growth and meaningful engagement among nursing home residents, staff and family members? Um, Barry Barkin, an esteemed colleague from California describes the traditional nursing home as embodying a domineering top-down culture rather than an interconnected relational one. I agree with Barry and describe nursing homes as exemplifying an ageist colonial culture that's an, an anachronism in our time. The colonial culture is based on the false premise 
that given the composition of residents, one needs to exert a kind of colonial prescriptive management presence. That view holds that since 70 to 75% of residents have significant cognitive loss and others are dealing with severe physical illness, the institutional culture is the safest and most efficient management approach. Nothing is further from the truth. It underestimates by a long shot what, what residents are capable of given an affirming environment. And it ignores the fact that many of the disruptive behaviors that one often sees in nursing homes are the direct result of the intolerance residents feel toward their emotional incarceration and anonymity. It underestimates also what direct care staff are capable of if there were enough of them. And if they were told far more about each resident than about his clinical data primarily. <laughs> in advocating for a more interconnected culture, we could learn a lot from Martin Buber who would have referred to the traditional nursing home culture as an I-it culture rather than an I-thou because human life finds its meaning in relationships. For, for each person, whether we live in a nursing home or in our own homes, each of our lives find meaning in relationship. No one shows this better than Marcella earlier. But in this highly controlled environment, nursing home residents aren't helped to come to know one another. They themselves aren't fully known. And it's not a question of, I think, therefore I am. For any of us, it is, I am known, therefore I am. I am cared about and loved. I matter to people, therefore I am. In nursing homes where I was consultant, staff had no idea when one resident, no idea that one resident owned a tailor shop at their bus stop. And that in 1936, when Jesse Owens, an African-American, won the gold medal and Hitler was not happy. Our resident, a tailor, a German Jew, won the silver medal in another competition and Hitler wasn't happy. Staff didn't know that another resident was a multi-decorated hero in World War II. And another, although valedictorian in her eighth grade class, she was not permitted to go to high school by her family, but had to work from age 12 to put her older brothers through professional schools. Another was a beloved high school English teacher. Yet another was for 30 years, the mayor of an upstate working class town. But no one ever told the staff anything about who these residents are. As each person became better known, each became more valued as an individual and care became not impersonally correct, but infused with knowledge of who he or she um, was and the care became uh, really quite relational, beautiful and staff were fully engaged. The excessive top-down control in nursing homes and the anonymity is actually sick making for residents and no one of any age or even of robust health, none of us could, could thrive, let alone survive, unknown in an environment like that over time. It reminds us of Sartre's no exit each person has to have a voice, agency, help to live as fully as possible, to know the people with whom each person is living and for them to know us, for the staff and residents to come to know and appreciate each other as people. Those of you who may have heard my last presentation via the coalition's webinar may remember that the process of transforming the bleakest nursing home unit into a beloved community was a relatively straightforward effort 
serious, seamlessly affirming both residents and direct care staff. We erect human scaffolding to lift the oppressive weight of the institution from the resident's shoulders via a group gathering on a weekly basis in which we talk and sing together, um, use poetry, reminiscence, current events, celebration of every holiday as it relates to residents' lives. Soon the many formally called negative behaviors subsided and residents came to know and celebrate one another's accomplishments welcome newcomers and remember fondly those who passed away. Their growth and camaraderie and encouraging the best in each other led the staff to experience them as far happier and easier to care for. Same for the staff, for a time to help undo the terrible strain under which staff often operate, we met weekly with staff on all three shifts until they got to know each resident as a person until they themselves began to successfully solve previously unaddressed problems and to build teams among the staff. Once this is achieved, you don't have to meet weekly. You can address problems as they arise because staff will already have succeeded in their reorientation within a very affirming, uh, a positive uh, uh, culture. Staff morale soared. Performance was enhanced because staff too need to have a voice to role play when needed and to play an important role so that they can help to solve problems. So we wanna move from a colonial domineering culture to one that honors the dignity and life stories of each person. It may be a particularly hard sell in New York because while the world shrimps, shrinks, excuse me, shrinks from the history of empire in New York in 2020, we still identify as like empire state we mindlessly refer to the Empire State Building and to Empire State Plaza in Albany. Empire State is proclaimed even on our license plates. Do we really want our state to further empower the empowered at the expense of everyone else? Or do we want our state to care more about its people? Do we want representation that respects and promotes the higher aspirations that we have as a people? Don't we want to be a more equitable society, more fair, appreciating our interrelatedness, our shared humanity with others, not diminished by prejudice or stereotypes based on our age, race, gender, sexual preference, or wherever we fall along the wellness illness continuum. Our deepest aspirations as a people are evidenced by the need to transform nursing homes institutional culture. How do we get there? Where do we go from here? Many have been heroic in advocating for safe staffing levels for improved infection control, but we don't yet see an adequate response to these Herculean efforts. In fact, often we don't see any response, although we're very much encouraged uh, by the initiatives that Assemblyman Gottfried um, uh, told us about just a few minutes ago. Our individual voices crying out in the wilderness have made incremental improvements in nursing homes over the decades. For instance, we no longer tie people down as happened before the restraint-free movement succeeded, but the institutional culture is the remaining restraint, perhaps more lethal because it's invisible. I appeal to each of you out there whom we can't see to help us develop critical mass in achieving a deep substantive change from nursing homes institutional culture into one that's life affirming that offers opportunities for residents to gather at least weekly, if not daily, to build community by speaking together, singing, using poetry, using everything, and above all, 
within an affirming, deeply respectful, warm and nurturing presence. Critical mass would help level the playing field. We'd be more effective as a group than as individuals. How do each of you recommend we achieve cr critical mass? I'm so glad to hear that Judy uh, is uh, representative of the, of the New York State Nurses Association. Should we draw into critical mass and appeal to our state uh, nurses association and national ones? What about the National Organization for Certified Nursing Assistance run by Lori Porter? What about schools of nursing, schools of social work, statewide area agencies on aging, the media, what are the pros and cons of eventually, and this sounds really impossible, trying to involve the powerful nursing home trade associations that themselves initiated the damaging immunity provisions that help maintain staffing levels that are below what residents need, that contribute to top government officials' political campaigns and to the parties in power? Should we not try to appeal to the trade associations to change their ways? since they siphon off precious Medicaid dollars into their political contributions. I look forward to your ideas out there, those of you whom we can't see as well, about whether to pursue critical mass, who to appeal to, how should we organize it? And finally, as we each cast our vote in this election, let's also each play a very positive role in transforming the institutional culture of our nursing homes we define what kind of people we want to be by our actions. We want to stop the marginalizing of anyone by age, race, gender, religion, whom one loves, wherever we fall along the wellness uh, agility continuum or wealth or lack thereof. We don't want empire in our states. We don't want empire in our nursing homes. We want an interconnectedness with one another that profoundly echoes Martin Buber's I, thou. Thank you. Kathy, Kathy, thanks so much. That was that was really um, wonderful and and thoughtful. And um, uh, the whole conversation so far has been very thought provoking for me. So I hope that is true for others as well. I am going to uh, start. We have some Q and A. Feel forgive me, people who have um, who have posted questions. I'm going to summarize them as best I can. Uh, they may be a little bit imperfect. We had several comments from Claire Campbell, who is a family member of a resident in long-term care. And they related, her comments related to uh, expediting the essential caregiver authorization to, to ensure that families um, have the ability to access their residents and vice versa. One question that she asked though, um, or, or, or kind of an issue that she posited that I thought was particularly interesting was uh, just wondering if you realize that just one COVID-19 positive staff keeps all of us loved ones out of excuse me, all of us loved ones out of visitation for two weeks. New science shows asymptomatic patients can shed virus and some tests are false negatives. If we caregivers wear PPE, sign a release, et cetera, why are we caregivers any different from the CNAs and other staff who are routinely traveling to and from the nursing home and handling residents up close every day? Um, so I'm gonna actually ask under Judy, since you're the clinician amongst us, if you have any comments there. That's that, that's also one of my um one of my questions that I ask all the time because I actually sit on the committee that um is working on on visitation the visitation policy and you know um it it breaks my heart uh 
last Saturday, we were supposed to start back visitation. And, you know, I had this particular family member, husband of one of our residents call me on Friday and he was so excited. He went and got his, um, his COVID test because that's another thing um, is a requirement. You must have a negative um, COVID test within the past seven days in order to, to come to the facility to get an in-person visitation. And, and this in-person visitation, which is something like I cannot even understand, um, it's, it's gonna be socially distanced. You know, you have family members coming to see their loved ones who they haven't seen for all these months. It's, it, it is required to be socially distanced. So you're gonna have um, only two, two visitors per resident. You have the resident in a wheelchair there. You have the two visitors, family members, six feet away. And, you know, we had a positive case on Saturday morning. So everything was canceled. Everybody who was scheduled to 10%, because it's 10% of the entire um, um, facilities um, um, census, only 10% is allowed to visit. And we had like a two hour visit schedule. So everything was canceled again until the 7th of, of November, which, you know, I, I, I actually, you know, tears were running down my eyes because I was just thinking of my, my family members, um, husband you know and he was he was just so disappointed you know but he was the one who encouraged me and said you know uh, Miss Johnson I do appreciate and you know we just have to keep the faith and hope you know something changes along the way but as as a patient advocate as the patient liaison it's just an emotional roller coaster for me I feel for these families. I feel, um, so, and my social, the director of my um, social work also told me today that um, she read in an article somewhere that people, um, they are actually like, like saying that residents are dying from COVID isolation. Meaning that, you know, because they don't have their loved ones who they have, they, they are custom having um, um, around them and helping with their care, not being there you know, it's depressing, it's heartbreaking. And again, it's just an emotional roller coaster from day to day as a caregiver, seeing, seeing these residents going through this. And I really, you know, I, I, I empathize, I sympathize and, and something needs to really be changed. And what all you said makes sense. You know, we coming from the outside. I mean, we, the, the fortunate thing with nursing, our nursing homes, we get tested weekly for, for COVID, for COVID. So, I mean, and the residents also get tested weekly. So if we, I don't know, if we continue on this path, it, it seems like it's never ending. And, and we want it to end because we want, we want our residents to, to, to family time, you know? So it's just really heartbreaking. It's really heartbreaking. Thank you, Judy. And I know Marcella had touched on that as well. Um, in, in terms of just people that are, that we know that are dying from from isolation and and how um, how hurtful and how hard that is for them, uh, of course, and as well as for their families. Uh, before we move on to the next question, I just want, want to also mention that Claire had made a very interesting point that her mom is 97, she has low vision and is hard of hearing, and that the window visits are just so sad for her. Uh, wow. In person, her mom is vibrant and charming and, and witty. Um, but that uh, it's something that we've discovered as well. You know, we, we 
uh, of course, supported any type of communication from the very start and still do. But we've heard a lot from, from family members that those, um, and in fact, it was one of the first times I heard it was at the, at the assembly member Godfrey's hearing that, um, you know, that, that, the, that the residents are becoming non, many of them are becoming non-responsive. Uh, there was one woman who had a child in a pediatric facility, I remember, and um, that the child refused to even look her way because it just becomes upsetting and, and, and very difficult to, um, uh, to bridge that. And I would just quickly say that, you know, we, um, as of, I guess, about two months ago, have been urging CMS in, in particular to, um, to require all facilities to have at least outdoor safe, but, but, you know, this was summertime, of course, but outdoor visitation and that also to be making arrangements for indoor visitation in ways that are accessible to, you know, for the residents and for the families, including weekends and, and evenings, because people work and it's hard for them to come in if your facility is only doing Tuesdays and Thursdays from two to four. And then of course, the restrictions, we've just heard so many heartbreaking things of people showing up from a long distance to come to a nursing home to see their loved one and being told that the nursing home is closed. Um, our next question is from Norman Reese. He asked, what can we do to get more older adults to age at home rather than having to enter nursing homes at all, or at least not until later in life? With the virus situation still raging, it seems that the restrictions on visiting will continue for a long time in 2021. So I think, you know, what this is, what Norman is getting, if I may, is, you know, talking about having other places for people to be getting uh, long-term care in particular. So I don't know, somebody member Gottfried, if you'd want to comment on that at all. Uh, yeah, I mean, they, the clear answer, certainly the first answer is making home care a lot more available. Uh, it is often the, maybe it is often the best option. Maybe some would say almost always uh, the best option. And yet New York is constantly uh, in our budget, making it harder and harder uh, for people to qualify for home care funded by Medicaid. Uh, as I said earlier, we took a couple of whacks at uh, the ability of people to get Medicaid coverage for home care during this past year's budget uh, that we ought to get rid of. Uh, so what, we're, what we do on home care in New York uh, year after year is moving exactly in the wrong direction. Thank you. Thanks so much. Um, our next question is from Ken Traub, uh, who's with the Elder Justice Committee of Metro Justice New York. And um, Ken is, uh, I'm going to paraphrase here, is interested in the safe staffing bill. And, and Ken is a, uh, a longstanding advocate, uh, who many of you might know. Uh, and of course, the Elder Justice Committee has done some, some great work speaking out in Albany, et cetera. Um, and but Ken in particular was interested in the potential for that being a standalone nursing home bill and separate from the hospital bill so that it could ho hopefully be passed more expeditiously in 2021. Uh, so I don't know if Assemblymember Coffey, and, and I, I should, I should yeah. question, I'd say that this is actually, um, the bill is, um, oh goodness, um, uh, I forget them now just because my head is spinning, but I forget the name of the assembly person who's sponsoring it now. Aileen Gunther. Thank you. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Aileen Gunther from the Hudson Valley uh, 
uh, one of the registered nurses in the assembly. Um, I think she may be the only registered nurse, I'm not sure. Um, we've, we've considered breaking it into two bills, one covering hospitals, one covering uh, nursing homes, uh, you know, on the theory that the nursing home piece might be easier to pass. Uh, it's certainly an option we're looking at. I think it's basically, it's in, at least in part a political question. Would it, would it get the nursing home half passed? Uh, there's also the question of, you know, would the, would the workers in hospitals uh, uh, feel that we were stomping on them? Uh, so it's an issue we've thought about. Uh, we'll continue thinking about it. Thank you. Um, this is uh, kind of a, an, also an interesting from Mina Sun. I hope I'm pronouncing your name correctly. Has there, have there been ideas of restructuring the nursing homes? The current nursing home model are institutional and over 100 residents under one roof. Has there been thoughts of putting about 10 to 12 residents in smaller homes? The care staff can then focus more or le on less, more on less re number of residents under the same roof. So Kathy, I'm gonna ask you if that's okay, if um, you have any comments on this. It's a great question. And many people are asking about the household models. Uh, the caution I would give in, in um, one that limits um, the number of residents to 10 to 12 is that that limits the amount of reimbursement that you can get. Uh, I'm much more comfortable with household models that have more flexibility than 10 to 12 residents. Um, some uh, household models that are extraordinary uh, have up to uh, oh, um, 15 to 20 residents, each having their own room, their own bath, a beautiful living room, uh, uh, you know, uh, all of that, very attractive. The advantage of one that's slightly larger is that you have adequate staffing, you have an RN, you have staff who do activities. Uh, the household models that limit to 10 to 12 residents have no activities. Um, it's a passive watching somebody cook or vacuuming or doing laundry. But what we're looking for is uh, residents having a voice, participating actively in their own lives. So uh, I'm uh, really urging people to think about something like um, Action Pact. Uh, Steve Shields and Laverne Norton's um, work all over the country and in different parts of the world uh, that have uh, great value and great success. So thanks for that question. It's a great question. Thanks. Yeah, and it's, it's a very interesting issue. I think if I just can add to that, uh, it's something that we certainly have been thinking about, you know, how to have smaller models of, of uh, nursing homes within even a larger, with a, uh, within a larger facility, especially here in New York, because, uh, you know, if you're in the, the New York City area or Buffalo or other cities, you know, in, in the state, um, New York, of course, being the biggest one, it's harder. We wouldn't be able to have a 12 person facility standing on its own, even if you wanted to. And how do we, uh, how do we operationalize that? So it's a, it's a very interesting question. Um, I think we have time for one more um, question. So let me just see if I can find a, um, a, a quick one. Uh, we have actually an anonymous attendee who I know had put in a question um, in the comments and then moves it over here. So, so this individual is an RN geriatric care manager, recently had two patients come from a five-star rated nursing rehab in Westchester. As a care manager, both patients came home in compromised condition from what was reported to me by the director of nursing and PT staff, the physical therapy staff. My question is how often are these reviews done? 
my frustration with recommending families to a five-star facility and realizing that I was not being told the truth leaves me as a professional apologizing for my recommendation. Um, I agree with Marcella Goheen that it's all about the fear of a lawsuit. One of my patients was told he was going to learn to urinate like a woman and had to wear adult diapers at night and encouraged to urinate freely rather than provide assistance at night to relieve himself. Another patient came home with two stage two pressure ulcers on his buttocks when I was told the same day his skin was intact. My question is how often are these facilities reviewed? And Judy, I might ask you if that's okay since you're, you're the clinician here, uh, if you have any thoughts about that. Um, in terms of review, uh, well, I am at actually a nonprofit, so I, I can speak to I can speak to where I work. I know it's um as I said, a lot of it is Medicare and Medicaid. So we have the state. Um, I think so far post COVID, we have had like two or three surveys, which they usually come in, you know, randomly sometimes. And every year we have we have the um the big the big um, survey that they come in yearly and do. Um, that, is, that is something that, that, that's very interesting um, um, that is observed because, you know, when you, when you want to get, when you, for the want of a better term, you want to just pass off residence, um, that, that, that's so unethical. You, you are supposed to prepare the, P, um, the PRI truthfully so the receiving facility knows exactly what is going on. However, that could be counted in, in terms of if that resident comes to you and has those pressure ulcers, um, the RN upon assessment, um, upon the admission assessment, is supposed to identify that you know that, that that the resident came with that, and therefore that will go back to the facility where the transferring facility that wouldn't be the, um, um, the receiving facility would not be held um, liable for that. Yeah, but um, again, you know, it's New York. It's it's a it's a lot of nursing homes to to deal with, and as far as I know, it's a once yearly thing. And it's just because, and then the, you have to, if you have any like like um, citations or whatever, you have to correct the, the issues and they give you a certain amount of time to correct the issues. And then they usually would come back and see if those issues were in fact corrected. But post COVID, they did do like, the, uh, I've heard that some facilities have had up to four visits already from the state. So, um, you know, but usually it's a once a year, it's a once a year um, that they, the state comes in to us to review those kind of things. Thank you, thanks so much. Yeah, well, um, I, I thank each of you um, for your really thoughtful and, and meaningful um, contributions today. I, I personally appreciate it and professionally, of course, as well. Uh, before we close, I just wanted to let everyone know that we are hosting a symposium on November 9th on addressing uh, nursing home abuse and neglect and crimes against residents. It's a free symposium. We have funding from the New York State Health Foundation, which is supporting that. Uh, if you go to our website about us and future programs, you can sign up for it there. Again, it's a, um, a free program. Thank you all for supporting us today. I'm just gonna hand it over to Deb Trahaski for a few last words. Thank you, Richard. I am in awe of the candor, thoughtfulness, and ingenuity 
that was demonstrated during our panel discussion this evening. I hope that everyone found tonight's program as informative and motivational as I have. A heartfelt thank you to our wonderful panel, to our sponsors, and to everyone who attended this evening. As Richard noted, I hope that you can join us for our symposium on November 9th. I wish everyone a good evening, and I wish everyone and their families good health and to stay safe during these times, and good night. Thank you.